Um, we are in Amos 5 and 6 tonight. Next week we wrap it up with 7, 8, and 9. And uh, we descend a little bit deeper into the darkness tonight. Aren't you excited? See, I just keep whittling away at the numbers of this Bible study by going into this dark stuff. Um, but there is hope next week, just a little bit. Um, and we have two more oracles uh, there's more judgment next week before we get to the hope, but there's, there are two more formal oracles that Amos preaches uh, and records here. Uh, one is chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. The other one is chapter 5, verse 18 through the end of chapter 6. Uh, Amos chapter 5 could be titled, uh, Religion Without Reformation, Transformation, or Conversion. Religion, and by the way, that... Just in my experience, that's what most religion really is, is it's an outward um, uh, manifestation or practicing of certain rituals that aren't really meant, and it doesn't necessarily transform your life, and that's why we are so centered on talking about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Son, uh, because religion has no power in it. But Christ does. The resurrected Christ does. Uh, so 5, 1 through 17 is the third oracle against the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, and in this oracle, it's God's appeal to his people to please repent. You can still repent. You can still turn back. But the irony here is that he already knows that they're not going to repent. He throws it out there literally begging them to come back to him. But the irony is that he knows that it's not going to help. It's not going to work. They're not going to change their minds. They're not going to turn around and come back to him. And this, the sad part of this is it's a lost opportunity for God's people. He sends the message, but he knows it's going to fall on, on deaf ears. Uh, his people are stiff-necked. That's a kind of an Old Testament term that the prophets like to use about uh, God's people like these. Have you ever been stiff-necked in your life? Yeah. What, what is a synonym for stiff-necked? What's another word? Stubborn, yeah. So, you ever been, so I got to, you know, Jackie's really, she has a straight, anyway, I'm kidding. <laughs> We've all been stiff-necked. All right, verses one through three of chapter five. Hear the word that I take up over you in lamentation. So uh, Amos is already signaling that he's going to make this call for repentance, but he's lamenting the fact that it's going to fall on deaf ears. Otherwise, he might, he might do it in, in joy or in gladness. But he's, he's taking this word over them in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken in her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city... That went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Again, tiny little glimmer of hope in that third verse about the remnant. But the remnant is always very, very small. As you can see there, about ten uh, percent. But he, but he calls them virgin Israel. That's actually a fairly common way for God to refer to uh, his people his nation, to indicate his special love for them, very much like a father of a virgin daughter. 
and how protective they can be of, of that daughter. But he's upset because his people, Israel, have decided, his virgin people, Israel, his daughter, has decided to prostitute herself. She is committing adultery against her Lord. And she's prostituting herself to her economy and to the military or their, their perception of their military might, uh, to the false gods and to the pagan worship of the, of the common culture there, and to self-serving sinful pleasure, especially, especially at the expense of others. In other words, uh, the sins of exploitation and oppression. And, and again, you see the language right up front. God knows they will not repent. We'll see that again later. And verse 3 is a preview of, of sorts. He's saying, here's where you're headed. The things that you've put your faith in, watch how they will disappoint you. Watch how you will fall clinging to these things that you've put your faith in. They will betray you. So verses 4 through 9. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. So here's the entreaty. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. We'll explain what all that means. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is a way of referring to the northern kingdom Israel. It's another way of saying Israel. And it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made Pallades and Orion or Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and, dark, and darkens the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. He says, seek me and live. Don't seek the pagan forms of worship that you can find in the cities of Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba. All of these cities were well known at this time for having temples, but not to Yahweh. They were temples to pagan gods and pagan rituals and pagan acts of, of worship primarily rooted in the Canaanite culture that was there well before uh, the Israelites came into the promised land from the Exodus redemption. And those practices included prostitution and orgies as forms of worship. We've talked about this on Sunday morning before, right? That in their culture, you could, you could go into a temple, you could pay money, you could have sex with a prostitute, and then walk out saying, I worshiped my God. Now, how attractive would that be to the fallen mind? Of course, okay? Also, they were doing child sacrifices, which is absolutely verboten as far as God is concerned. And then they would have lavish banquets of gluttony as forms of worship as well. So, uh, sex, infanticide, and gluttony. That's how they would worship these gods. Who's in? I, it, seriously, I mean, you talk to... You talk to a fallen mind, uh, anybody who's not regenerate, and you say, Here, here's a way that, you, and by the way, you can say this to people who are also regenerate, and I mean, I, I, know, I know the darkness, some of the darkness of my heart and my mind, I could figure out a way to make this work too. 
I could. That, that's the challenge of being fallen. And by the way, Beersheba was actually in Judah, just across the border in Judah, which is interesting and, and probably raises this question. Um, why, why, why is he in the northern kingdom uh, proclaiming words of judgment against Israel, but he's throwing in Beersheba? Well, occasionally, these oracles against the northern kingdom, he will reference a place in Judah. Uh, in fact, later on, he's going to say something against Zion, which is also a strictly Judean reference. And the reason is because it's a reminder that God's judgment is also going to come on Judah because they were having the same problems as Israel. They just weren't quite as advanced yet. So um, think of the... You don't, don't say it out loud. I don't want to offend anybody. Think of the most uh, immoral pagan city that y- you perceive in the United States. Okay, That's Israel. Then think of the most moral city in the United States, which is still fallen and corrupt, but it's more moral than that other city you thought of. Okay, that's Judah. They're just not quite as advanced yet, but they're on their way, and they are uh, beginning to practice the very same things. So the northern kingdom has their day of the Lord in 722 when the Assyrians come in. The southern kingdom has their day of the Lord in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. when the Babylonians come in. So it's coming for Judah as well, just not as imminent. This passage here also talks about how false gods and pagan worship have no power against the one true God. That's that's one of the points that God is making. You need to repent and come back to me because I'm the one with real power. We're studying Ephesians on Sunday morning right now for the next, I don't know, seven years or whatever it is. Um, and, and one of the things that, the biggest thing I think Paul is trying to get across in this letter is that the power of Christ is stronger than the power of magic or the power of pagan thought or the power of pagan worship. Um, we're recording. I won't tell that story. Can you turn off the recording for a second? Can you do that? No? Okay. All right. Let me change the names and the situation to protect the innocent. Because I want to tell you. Now, now I have to tell you, right? Yeah. Um, okay. In a context, having a, anybody heard about, anybody know what the law of attraction is? Now, that's very impressive sounding. The law, like it's, you know, Okay. So it's not attraction theory for those of you who are psychologists or in the communication discipline. That's completely different. The law of attraction is this idea, oh, I'd love to show you the clip, this idea that if you, if you envision something happening to you, if you think positively, then it will happen. Um, there's, a, there's a video somewhere in the 1990s on YouTube of Jim Carrey sitting with Oprah, and he's now successful, and... Uh, and Oprah's really big into this law of attraction. She believes that it's true, okay? That's absolutely true. And he tells the story of how when he was struggling and he wasn't getting any work and he wanted to be an actor, but of course he wasn't getting anywhere with it, uh, he wrote himself a check for $10 million. And then he put it in his uh, wallet and he said, I'm going to cash this in five years. And and the wallet became, or the, the check became this sort of piece of his identification that was always in his wallet. And then, right, it was like Thanksgiving of a certain year. And right before that happened, he signed the contract 
uh, to do Dumb and Dumber for $10 million. And of course, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So here you go. All you got to do is say, I'm going to buy the winning lottery ticket and just envision it, believe it. If you, can, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. You, you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So, of course, I'm sitting there listening to this going, okay, so why doesn't the law of attraction work for me? My body's falling apart, and I keep envisioning myself as a 25-year-old distance runner. It's not working. Okay, well, apparently I don't have enough faith. Where have you heard that before? Okay. So this is what Paul's dealing with in Ephesus. And in a sense, it's what... Amos is dealing with in the northern kingdom, and it's what God has dealt with in the human condition since Genesis chapter 3. And, and, and we need to remember that God is loving in his, in his inv- invitations. He's loving in his invitations, and notice that's plural, invitations. He's patient and he's loving, but he's also faithful in his denunciations. And, and that's that's the part that, uh, of God that a lot of people don't like and don't get. They love the part that he's, he's loving in his invitations, but when we say, yeah, but there's also a problem if you don't come. I don't like the fact that God has control over my life. <laughs> okay, well, good luck with that. Okay. And then verse 7, Wormwood. This is not just a C.S. Lewis character. It's a plant that's indigenous to that area. It, it's Bitter and very poisonous. And, and it was known as something that you would sneak into somebody's food or drink in order to, to whack them, to off them, to kill them. This is why they had uh, cupbearers. One of the reasons they had cupbearers or wine tasters, you know, food tasters for, for royalty. Um, I watch a lot of those, um, you know, forensic shows. And in our day, we seem to, we seem to use uh, antifreeze. We put antifreeze in, in iced tea and... People can't tell, apparently. This is way sweeter than normal and tastes awful, but I'm going to drink it all anyway. You know, so. And then he talks about justice. We need to understand this is not just a legal term. It is a legal term, but it's not just a legal term. But it's, way, it's a way, um, it's used to describe all the ways in which God calls us to treat life and to treat others. So he's not just worried about the outcome of a, of a court case, but he wants us to be fair in our business dealings. He wants us to honor contracts. Um, he wants us to, here you go, he wants us to use scales that are not doctored. So how would you feel if you found, I mean, we're in Arcadia, most of us shop at Trader Joe's, Right? Sprouts, Whole food. Anyway, Safeway, I don't care. How would you feel if those scales where they're measuring your produce were doctored and it was like somebody's pressing their finger on that? How would you feel if you go to, um, if you go to Exxon and you're filling your tank with gas and you find out that um, when it says uh, one gallon, it's really only eight-tenths of a gallon? Okay. Uh, the reason that we have a department of, of scales in, in every state is because people would argue with you that they, it's because that's what God would call us to. We've got to check that stuff. Uh, it's also honoring your word. And this one gets hard and dicey, I know. 
because we can come up with all kinds of reasons why we can't honor our word. And there are sometimes legitimate reasons. However, there's also this. I, I, I think I've told this story before. I once had a Christian friend who always made promises to people, but if it became inconvenient in the slightest to keep that promise, he would bail on it. And he had no problem doing that. It was his thing. And people actually in the community knew him for that. This is the reputation that he had garnered. And when I started to, when I was first introduced to him and started to become his friend, I literally had people coming up to me all the time. Don't get too close to this guy. Here's what he does. But I'm one of those guys, sometimes uh, to my detriment, that wants to discover things on their own and and have my own experience and figure that their experience was tainted by their own perception in some way. I didn't listen. Then I experienced it. And I mean I experienced it over and over and over to the extent where it was embarrassing, you know, and and put me in very difficult situations a number of different times. Um, And he literally would never keep his word if there was anything about it that would inconvenience him in any way or if something just better came along. If something just better came along. And then here's the real problem I had with it, is that if you called him on it, he would get mad at you and tell you that you're not a real Christian because you're not extending grace to him. So that was it for me. <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. See, that's called license. And, and Paul actually speaks to this in Philippians chapter 2. And again, we're in Amos. And this you've got to understand, this is what God's people were doing in 752 B.C., but Paul speaks to it 800 years later when he writes to the, to the church in Philippi, and it's in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In particular, it's chapter 4. Paul writes this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider other people better than yourself. And then verse 4, Look not only to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Now, the way I hear that interpreted and taught very often is, see, it's okay to look to your own interests and protect them. It's just that as you're doing that, you should also protect the interests of others. That is not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is, yes, it's fine to look to your own interests, but when your interests are commingled with somebody else's interests, and now something comes down the pike where one of the two interests is going to be in jeopardy depending on the decision that you make, You have to humbly submit yourself to the interests of the other before the interests of yourselves. How many times have you ever been in partnership in the marketplace with somebody who, we are partners, we're going to take that hill together, we're going to go down together, we're just everything, 50-50, we're partners, but then they control the decision making, and when that one decision comes down, where they come out semi-whole and you come out really underwater, they're, they're going to take the, the decision where they come out semi-whole. Paul is saying that's not what we do. That's really hard, isn't it? That's really, really hard. But also, justice is protecting the weak from the strong. It's pushing back against oppression and exploitation. It's refusing to take advantage of situations. All of these are signs of God's understanding of justice. It's not just in court. And then verses 8 and 9, Pleiades and Orion are constellations that were worshipped as gods, as were the seas. So this Mediterranean Sea was worshipped. The the Sea of Galilee was worshipped as as a god. Even though um, 
God's people see that as darkness and evil. It was worshipped even in the pantheon as a, as a god. But think about how God describes this. He says, if you're worshipping uh, Pleiades or Orion, stars in the sky, or if you're worshipping the depths of the sea, here's what God is saying. I'm everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to escape from me. Nothing you can do. Highest heights, lowest depths, doesn't matter. And, and it's also... He's speaking ironically, too, because God's the one who created these things in the first place. So you're worshiping something that's created, which Paul speaks against in Romans chapter 1 as well. Instead of worshiping the creator, we begin to worship that which has been created. Okay. Verses 10 through 13. They hate him who, approve, who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Uh, here's, uh, you see twice there, the, the reference is made to the gate or the gates. Um, in their days, all cities had very tall defensive gates. We talked a little bit of, or um, walls with gates. We talked a little bit about that last week about uh, the gate, the walls around Babylon, how they were terrific. Um, every city had those. And I, if you remember last, year, last week, I was trying to remember what the name of that thing was that they had manufactured to be able to ram the gates. Okay, as we were walking out, I don't remember who I said it to. It might have been Bud, but I, I said, oh, siege machines. They were siege machines. Here, here's a siege. That's what a siege machine looks like. So, and it's interesting because this one has a cover on it. Remember I told you that it, when they would pr push the siege machines up against the, uh, the gates, then they'd pour boiling oil on the people? So this one has a little cover, and, and it was kind of a, kind of a Fred Flintstone thing because you had to run with it and push it, you know, and you'd, you'd run with it and push it as hard as you can up against the gate, and you'd have to keep ramming it and ramming it. And so all the guys would say, I want to be inside underneath the protective, and, but there would be guys on the outside too. So that's the siege machine. Um, but many of the cities, such as the bigger Israelite cities, not only had one wall, but they had what's called a double wall. So they had a wall, and then there, were, there was maybe 20 feet, and then another wall, very high, double gates, and that area in between the two walls, especially during the warmer weather, was a place where people liked to go to, to be in the shade, to be in the cool, there, it was a cool area between the two uh, walls, cool temperature-wise, not like, hey man, I'm a hipster, between the walls, it's not like that, okay? Um, and so when there's no threat, they'd open the gates, and the city judges would actually go out there and they would hear their cases between the walls in, in the cool areas. So God is saying that anyone who does this in an, inhonest, in, a dishon, in an honest way, anyone who does it in an honest way, without bribes, without bias, without favoritism, is hated. This is what's happened, the corruption of the culture in the northern kingdom. 
If you were somebody who judged honestly, you were hated. Because the wealthy people in Israel wanted pliable judges. They wanted judges that were susceptible to bribes. In verse 11 all you have built for yourself through these dishonest means you will cease to enjoy. It's, it's just that simple. It's J.A. Motyer, the great Old Testament scholar, writes this. Those who gain unjustly will not enjoy perpetually. Kind of a sing-song way of saying it. Verse 11 is a picture of hope that's never realized because your hope is in the wrong things. It's a frustrated hope. It's a hope that's been placed in things other than the true, one true God. It's Tom saying that false gods never fail to fail. And verses 12 to 13 are a recap of the injustice done at the city gates at the hands of the corrupt judges. And verse 13, to me, sounds really familiar. Those who see the injustice and would like to say something. So they, people are watching and they see how unjust this is. They would like to say something, but they don't. They prudently Keep their mouths shut. Was it Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for evil triumph is for, is for good men to do nothing? Something like that. Okay. But just like today, so many people will not say things in the public sphere, even though it's right, because of the scorn and the ridicule they will endure. That's nothing new. God is acknowledging that that happened back then. And he's not saying... By the way, he's not saying those prudent people as a compliment. It's, it's, it's a little bit of snark. It's a little bit of sarcasm or, or, or irony. Okay? Verses 14 through 17, the end of the first oracle. Seek good and not evil, that they may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord... The God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Again, Joseph is Israel. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. Um, as you hear that verse, just think about the uh, New Orleans funeral processions. If you've ever thought about that or if you've ever seen one of those. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. There's a lot here in these four verses. Uh, first notice, hang with me on this. Notice that God tells them to seek good regardless of how they feel. This is a big deal, and it speaks directly to us today in our culture. Um, in our postmodern culture, one of the tenets of postmodernism is that you only do something if you first feel it. You have to feel it to do it. Just feel it, and then it's okay to go ahead and do it. And it's a form of oppression if you, feel like you, if, if you decide you have to do something even though you don't feel like it. This is why romantic relationships have become so disposable. How, how many of you are married, and you've been married for like a long time, like maybe more than a week, and you recognize that you don't always have these head-over-heels feelings of love for your spouse? 
Okay, what do you what do you do with that? Okay, well, this does not square with God's call on us. Nor does here here's the interesting thing. Nor does it square with human behavior research on this topic. This is what's really fascinating. Um, the deed often precedes the feeling. In reality, the way humans operate, the deed often precedes the feeling. The, the deed doesn't always have to wait for the feeling. God calls us to seek good even before we necessarily love good. Uh, Cody, um, trying to, I think it was January 7th, the first Sunday. Yeah, January 7th, Cody was up talking. And he talked about how he instructs his kids to say thank you. And when they say they don't feel like it, that's when he says, well, then you really have to do it because this is how you're going to generate a grateful heart. So Cody understands this. He, he's, he's, he's doing this in parenting to help his kids know that in order to have a grateful heart, you have to first go out and behave in a grateful way. Think of how improved marriages would be if people would figure this out and practice it. Uh, the beauty of this reality is that, is that the good feeling does often, more often than not, follow the good behavior. And Tom has taught about this before. Some of you probably have heard him talk about this. You know, people get together romantically, and when you first get together romantically, no matter what, you both think of each other when you, you, it's that... Uh, Oh, God, it's wonderful to be in love again feeling. You've had that, right? Okay, so when you first get together with that person, um, you see her as a 10. She sees you as a 10. Okay, and so you treat each other like 10s. But then reality begins to set in, right? And suddenly you realize you're with a 7. And they realize they're with a (laughs) 6. And you begin to treat each other like a seven and a six. And what is that? What ha- you keep going. And so pretty soon you're like, I'm, I'm, how did this happen? I'm with a two now. And you're treating each other that way. And Tom says, this is fairly simple to fix, but very few people will ever do it. Start treating each other like a ten again. But they're not a ten. I don't feel like they're a ten. I don't perceive them as a ten. Irrelevant. <laughs> Start treating them like a 10, and they will become a a 10 again in your eye. And what's funny is that's not just the idiot, untrained, uneducated founding pastor of Redemption Church saying that. Talk to PhDs in psychology. They'll tell you the same thing. Human behavioral research has proven that this actually works. Uh, Did Jesus feel like going to the cross? We're told in Scripture that he tried to make a deal with his Father. He said, everything the Father does, I do. Everything the Father tells me to do, I do. Everything that I'm saying is what the Father would say. And then he gets to the night before he's going to be crucified, and he's like, God, Dad, if there's a plan B, let's talk about it right now. But then what does he say? Not my will, but your will. He didn't feel like going to the cross, but he did. And I'm telling you, I am a big grace guy. Um, People have told me in the past, in terms of of, um, 
uh, pastoring how I might handle certain situations, uh, I've been accused in the past, privately, um, of extending too much grace, of not being hard enough, which some of you are like, really? I, <laughs> I can't. Seriously, you're like, no way. But that's true. I've been accused of that before. I'm a big grace guy, but at the same time, I will tell you, Christians are accountable and responsible to exalt duty over inclination in order to discover how loving acts will lead to a loving heart. Jesus, I'm way off script now, but i got to say it. Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, love your enemies. Now, he had six different word choices for the word love that he could have used there. He could have said eros, romantically love your enemies. <laughs> he could have said philia, love your enemies like a brother. All, he could have said any number of different loves. He said agape, your enemies. Agape is the only love in that Greek language that does not depend on any sort of worthiness in the object of your love for you to love it. It's the one love that is a, a derivative or an outgrowth, an outworking of the character of the one who's loving. He's saying, while you were enemies of God, I died for you, I love for you. In that same way, you need to also agape your enemies. Jesus is admitting, he's admitting, I know there's nothing in your enemies that is worthy of your love. I get that. Love them anyway, because that's the way I've loved you. That, that's, that's the command that Scripture, that Jesus gives us. And then in verse 14, he says, if you do this, by the way, God will be with you. Seek the Lord so that he's with you. By the way, Rich, you probably, I'm guessing you might know this, so don't say anything. Uh, goodbye is a contraction of what? Anybody know? When we say goodbye, it's actually a contraction of God be with you. That's the origin, the etymology. I'm a word nerd. That's the etymology of goodbye. God be with you. So when you say goodbye to someone, if you don't want God to be with them, don't say goodbye. Say bye-bye now. Okay? Now, I see a tension in verses 14 and 15, and I, and I want to talk a little bit about what we do with that. The tension that we're saved, we're forgiven, we're justified, we're righteous, God sees us that way. And yet, if we don't um, follow God, our lives are going to suffer, and he seems to be in charge of that. <laughs> That's that idea that living as a redeemed person of Christ in this fallen and corrupt world, there is a sense that our salvation has an already aspect and a not yet aspect. We are saved. God sees us as righteous, but we are not yet in, the, the, in its totality, in its fulfillment, in its completion. We're not there yet. We pine to be there. We want to be there. That's the new Jerusalem. Can't wait for that to happen, but there's that tension. We're redeemed in an unredeemed context and world. And, and Paul does a little bit of work with this in Romans 7, dealing with this. The second half of Romans 7, it's a fairly famous passage where Paul says things like, uh, the very things that I'm supposed to do, I don't do those things. The very things I don't want to do, they're the things I find myself doing. And he says it's this war between my flesh and the spirit. 
Do you ever feel like there's a war between the Spirit of God and your flesh? Yes. We're all living in the, in the midst of that. How many of you have ever read um, Robert Louis Stevenson's little novella, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? You probably know the story. Have you read the novella? The, his novel, it's about 100 pages long. Anybody read it? It is his... Robert Louis Stevenson was, was raised in a good Lutheran home. By the way, it was written in the late 1800s. He was raised in a good Lutheran home. Some people, that's, that's redundant, Frank. All Lutherans are good. Okay, he was raised in a Lutheran home, all right? Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is actually his allegory of Romans 7, that we all have a Jekyll and a Hyde. <laughs> okay, here you go. Something a little bit more contemporary that maybe I'm sure more of you are aware of and have experienced and either watched or read, but you will not admit in here because you don't want your pastor to know it. Uh, how about Dexter. Dexter? Anybody? Dexter? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. You have one honest person in here, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Dexter. Okay. W w what was what was Dexter's existential wrestle all the time? His dark passenger. Dexter had this dark passenger. He wanted to be a good person, and basically he was, and he was well thought of in his work environment as this wonderful person. But he had this dark passenger that needed to kill. It's a modern-day Jekyll and Hyde. And, and, and it's dealing with, by the way, seasons two through eight of Dexter, each one of those seasons deals with an existential question that Christianity can answer, but they never get around to that. <laughs> so it's, it, this is challenging for sure, but this is the milieu that we live in. And the assumption in verses 16 and 17 is that the Israelites are never going to repent of this. And part of that is what, what, that's, that's what privilege can do to us. It can, privilege can make us feel entitled. They were privileged people. And, and, it could, and it made them feel entitled. And so God describes this refusal to repent as their funeral procession. In all the squares there will be wailing. In all the streets people will be yelling, alas, alas. It's a picture of a funeral procession. And then the final oracle, the woe of lament, starting in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. That is an amazing verse right there. As if man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Uh, there's some wording, interesting wording stuff in verse 21 we'll talk about. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody uh, of your harps, I will not listen. That's why we don't have harps here, by the way. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kayan, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, 
and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So the day of the Lord, during the 8th century, this became a huge deal for the Israelites, this idea of the day of the Lord. It was very popular to talk about it. And God's people wanted it. They pined for it because they were sure that their, their empty religion was going to be, uh, th- th- that God was going to bestow praise and blessing on them for their empty religion, for their whitewashed tombs, so to speak. So they wanted God to come and, and, and destroy all the evil because they didn't see themselves as evil. And Amos is saying, it's going to be darkness for you. That day of the Lord is going to be darkness for you. He tells them the truth. The religious acts that you are practicing that are void of ethical living are infuriating your God. Matyr again, he writes this, uh, religion without morality attracts divine revulsion. Religion without morality attracts divine revulsion. You ever wonder if we do this, if we practice our religious acts and, and God doesn't find them pleasing, it actually infuriates him? And verses 18 and 19 are Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 talks of the same thing. They're yearning for the day of the Lord because they think they're going to receive praise from God, but no. Uh, It's like you escape the lion, but you run into a bear. Which would be worse, by the way? I'm not sure. I do a lot of hiking, and I've run into bears, but not lions, and I'm not interested in either one. I'll tell you what I've run into more often than any, though, are rattlesnakes. Uh, One morning, I was out with Bruce, the caterer, and we walk every Wednesday morning in the Phoenix Mountain Preserves over here um, where Piastoa is. And uh, we were just starting our hike uh, at the trailhead. We had gone maybe 10 yards, and my shoe was untied, so I bent over to start tying my shoe, and there's this little cave right there behind me. And it's dark. We start at 4.30 in the morning, on Wednesday mornings. And it was dark, and a, a, a rattlesnake was in that little cave, and he started rattling. And Bruce is like, get out of there, man. That's a rattlesnake. I'm like, it's a bird. So I stood there and tied my shoe while the snake was rattling, and then, and then he said, come on, he's like trying, and, then he, and then he shines his light in there, and sure enough, there was a rattlesnake in there all coiled up. Okay, God's saying, this is what's going to happen to you. you. I'm sitting there going, it's a bird, I'm tying my ship. God is saying, this is what's going to happen to you, Israelites, you think everything's fine. How many of you have scorpions in your house occasionally? We do. You know, you lean your hand against the wall, oh, look at that, there's a scorpion there. Okay. Our dogs are fascinated with scorpions, and I'm tired of them sniffing them out because then they get stung on the nose. And they're mad at us for some reason. It's like, you did it. I don't know. Um, So for the Israelites, they believed that the day of the Lord, God would put Israel in charge of the world, militarily, economically, everything. In fact, and again, I want you to think about Paul's writing when he starts in Ephesians, we're going to deal with some eschatology, some end-time stuff. Not in the way some of you might think. Just We're going to brush up against it. But Paul has this in his mind when he's thinking about the day of the Lord. The Israelites, the northern kingdom, wanted the day of the Lord. Paul knows this history better than anybody in this room, ten times better than I do, and I think I've studied it a little bit. 
The day of the Lord for the northern kingdom ended up being the Assyrians coming in and wiping them out. That was their day of the Lord. The day of the Lord for the southern kingdom became the Babylonians coming in and wiping them out. The Jews of the first century, in the context when Jesus and Paul lived, their day of the Lord was the hope that God would wipe out the Roman Empire. The biblical hope that Christians have, our inheritance, the day of the Lord, is the coming of Christ in this, in the new Jerusalem. So that's the reality. So their day of the Lord is not going to be that great. And verses 21 through 24 are, just, are very famous. Uh, he says, your solemn assemblies, you know, literally the language in, in the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew is this. It's, uh, what you're doing with your sacrifices makes me nauseous. It's a stench to my nostrils. That's literally what he's saying there. But verse 24, let justice roll down. Um, I like what Tyler Johnson says. It, it, it's similar. Grace is like water. It always flows downhill and settles in the lowest places. And God is saying that that's what justice needs to do. It needs to flow downhill and settle in the lowest places. And the day of the Lord, he's saying, should be you returning to God and acting with justice. That should be your day of the Lord, you coming back to me. But it's not going to happen. Verse 25, while religion without morality causes divine disgust, it's also equally true that morality without worship is also empty. Um, this idea of being a social gospeler, this was a big movement in the early 1900s, you can read about Walter Rauschenbosch and Washington Gladden. They were famous social gospelers. They were, they were people who said, look, um, the, the way to be a Christian is, is not in church. You don't need to be in church. You don't need to follow Jesus. You just need to go out and do acts of justice for other people. That's your way of salvation. They were called social gospelers. We have social gospelers today as well. There are people who believe that they are God's people, not because they know Jesus, but because they do acts of justice in their minds for others, whatever that is. And here's the problem. Cody talks a lot about this uh, much better than I do, but I get the gist of it. Um, uh, he, he says that um, uh, there are people out there that have a ministry of awareness. So their acts of justice is posting stuff on Facebook and Twitter. We should be mad about this. There, I'm a person of God. What have you sacrificed by posting something on Twitter, other than maybe you might get unfriended by somebody? Well, Facebook, okay? God hates that. He wants, first and foremost, us to be in relationship with him and us giving him his due. He's God. Worshiping him, reading his word, praising him, singing. In verse 20. Six, uh, Sikath and Kayan are pagan Mesopotamian gods that they had been worshiping, and God mocks them for it. And he says, your judgment's going to be worse than the Syrians. So they've been in battle for more than 100 years with the Syrians, which is just north of them in Damascus. Damascus was their capital. He says, it's not going to be the Syrians anymore. I'm sending the Assyrians, and they're way worse than the Syrians. The Syrians are child play compared to the Assyrians. Here you go. The Syrians are Walter White. The Assyrians are Dexter. There you go. That should give you some context. And then you move into chapter 6, 1 through 7. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom 
the house of Israel comes. Notice that he's specifically singling out men here now. Does that remind you of another passage we had maybe last week where he was singling out somebody else? Okay. Pass over to Kalna and see, and go from there to Hamath the Great, then down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than, than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or do you put far away the day of disaster? Oh, you put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on the beds of ivory, who stretch themselves out on their couches, who eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. What's a calf in the midst of a stall? Veal. Very good, bud. Thank you very much. Not even a plant. That's good. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp like David, uh, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, over the ruin of Israel. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those, the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Uh, so again, Zion, the reference to Zion, it's actually in Judah. It's just a reminder that uh, g- the need for repentance is for all of God's people, not just the northern kingdom. And verses 1 through 7 are sort of the counterpoint to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. In, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the women were compared to cows. They were fat, sassy, and happy, but that was going to end. This is a call against the men for their pride, arrogance, and stubbornness. And verse 1 is an exhortation to never rest on your laurels. We need to keep digging into God's word to know him, to love him, because he always, always, always has more for us. And, and the cities of Kalna and, and Hamath and Gath, these were great military cities of their day who had already fallen to the Assyrians. There's, we have a map. Yay, maps. So there's Kalna all the way over to the east. Hamas up in the north, that's actually Syria, and Gath is down there in Philistia. So again, look at the expanse of what the Assyrians have already taken, but they haven't taken Israel yet because God's been holding them off. It's like they've got Israel surrounded because there's Samaria, the capital of Israel, and they've already gone to the west and the south of, of, of Samaria, down to Gath, and God's saying, Those are great military cities, and the Assyrians have wiped them out. What makes you think that's not going to happen to you? That's what God is saying. And then he says, how dare you be grateful for what you don't have? I mean, what what you do have. How dare you not be grateful for what you have? God is a God who blesses. But be sure of this, if we take our blessings for granted... It is one of the most despicable ways that we can dishonor and disrespect God. We need to practice thanksgiving better than we do. They were having the greatest economy in their nation's history since Solomon was king, and they're wasting it because they believe they were entitled to it, and they believe that it would protect them uh, from any harm, and they were not humbly thanking God for it. Verse 3 you're practicing avoidance, which only makes things worse. Have you ever, are you a problem and conflict avoider? You ever noticed how a tiny little situation, if you avoid it, it gets bigger? It's kind of like you're camping at Christopher Creek outside of Payson, and you have a campfire, and, then, and you put out the campfire, but there's one little amber there, and you go, ah, it's out, it's okay. And you, 
that one little amber, and then three days later, you look on the news, and there's a 40,000-acre fire up there. Okay, this is what God is saying. And he says, it's the result of your prophets, your false prophets, actually, preaching peace, peace, when they should be preaching, you're in trouble. And next week, we're going to see that they try to shut Amos up. Just like they did all the other prophets that have a message like Amos, they tried to get him to shut up. And verses 4 through 6, you're living this life of luxury and thinking all is great. Ivory is a symbol of wealth and luxury, and they were eating tender lamb and veal. They were, mutton was not on their menu. It was lamb and veal. So here you go. Let's update this a little bit. Woe to those who stay at the Biltmore and shop at the Biltmore and eat at Donovan's and binge watch Netflix and drink wine by the case and bathe in Lancome Clinic and Estee Lauder, but find no time to help the helpless. See, this is the, pro- the problem isn't the Lancome Clinic, Estee Lauder. The problem isn't the Biltmore. The problem isn't Netflix. The problem isn't uh, our luxury. The problem is, is that we're doing that with no regard to those who have nothing. To those who are hopeless and helpless. It's not that those pleasures are wrong, but we're giving no regard uh, to those who really need help. Verses uh, 8 through 10. Oh, there we go. And the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob. Jacob is Israel. I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, There's still anyone with you? And he shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. That's weird. So, verse 8, the people have put their faith in their economy and in their military strength, not in the Lord. In verses 9 and 10, he's saying, because you've done that, nothing's going to be left. In the wake of destruction, and in the wake of the destruction, the people will be too frightened to talk about God because they knew they had their chance. Let that sink in. In the wake of the destruction, they'll be too frightened to speak of God because they knew they had their chance. That's when they'll start to feel the hypocrisy of their lives, is after it's too late. They had been warned and they ignored the warning. Last four verses, 11 through 14. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there? On the rocks with oxen, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Libo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. So God seems to like this lesson plan. If you remember from chapter 3, we also had this lesson plan from God. He says there's natural consequences to certain behavior. There are simple rules of nature that you need to follow. Things like gravity. Do you notice that gravity always wins? 
Uh, sowing and reaping. You can't reap what you haven't sowed. Um, eating and exercise. You know, how do you lose weight? Eating and exercise. And actually, as I've studied it more, it is really like 75-80% what we eat. And not. Here you go. little tip from the 58-year-old. The older you get, the harder it is to out-exercise your bad habits. Sooner or later, you have to change your habits. Okay? Those are, those are natural law, right? So do horses look for jagged, rough, rocky places to go and frolic? <laughs> He's saying, of course they don't. And oh, by the way, is that where you want to plow the field so you can plant? No. He says, how stupid is that? Well, guess what? You have ignored me, so now there's a consequence. There's a price to pay. Lodabar and Karnaim were cities across the Jordan uh, in the east side of Israel, near Syria. They were Israelite territory. They were in Israelite territory. They were considered part of the nation of Israel, but they were constantly in play with the Syrians because there was that major thoroughfare that would go down to Egypt. So there was this constant fight between the Syrians and the uh, Israelites to control those cities. And recently, the Israelites had militarily taken back those cities from the Syrians, and they were feeling pretty cocky about it. We don't need God. We've, we've, got, we've got all these horses and chariots. So God is giving them yet another warning against putting your faith in your own might. And then there's the problem in verse 14. God will raise up another nation worse than the Syrians, and he's going to, those Syrians, those Assyrians, they're going to take you to places you don't want to go. So here's what I think is some good application for us in today's context. I see three invitations in these verses from God to us, his people. There's an invitation to seek God. That's the first invitation, which is an invitation to intimacy with him. And and not just in community, which is important, and not just in intentional gospel-centered relationships, which we highly value at Redemption Arcadia, but with yourself. Just quietly being with the Lord. Be still and know that he is God. Reading his word. The second invitation is to seek the good, which is something that flows out of seeking God. You don't seek the good first. You seek God first. Flows out of uh, seeking God. You, You seek the good. And seeking the good is actually an invitation to life and liberty. I've struggled with this so much. Um, People want freedom to do whatever they want. Okay, here you go. The freedom to do whatever you want eventually costs you, will cost you being able to do other things that you want to do. Here's what my heart desires. Here's what I want to do, okay? I will just tell you. uh, What's the name of that ice cream with the screw-off tops that has all the flavors? Start Talenti or Tanini or whatever. Some of you know it. Okay. No, it's it's um, Talenti. Yes, thank you. Okay. Um, I would like to eat one of those every night and and three bags of Cheetos every day. And and when I go into Subway, I don't want extra meat. I want an extra loaf of bread. Okay. But if if I exercise my freedom to be able to do that. Am I not going to restrict my ability to do other things that I want to do, like hiking? 
and um, impressing Jackie when I'm on the beach. Um, that's all right, going too far. But anyway, so you understand what I'm saying? So seeking the good is actually an invitation to life and liberty. It's called negative freedom. It's the, the ability to say, I'm not going to do that so that I can do this better thing. Okay? That's the freedom we have in Christ. And then the third invitation is an invitation to seek justice, which is an invitation to love and serve others. So here's the deal. How? How do you do this? Just, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I'm going to determine. No. This is the toughest part for most of us. It, it, it is by his power and grace, especially if you are a high-capacity person, which I'm guessing every person in here is. I, I like to think of myself as a high-capacity person. I, I'm, I'm going to say this Sunday. I resonate so much with Luke Simmons, who's the pastor of our Gateway congregation. Uh, he said in a meeting about a month ago, he said, it frightens me how much ministry I can actually do under my own power. Now, why would that frighten him? Pride, but also you're heading for a fall if you're just doing ministry under your own power because you can't. You can't sustain it. This is only sustainable by the power of the gospel, by the power of the resurrection, by the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit. If, if God does not build the house, the workers labor in vain. Uh, two quick... Don't you love it when somebody describe scripture as quick. Two, pa- two little verses out of the New Testament and we're done. Uh, Acts 9.31, Luke writes this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in their own intelligence and methodology and by their Power and capacity, the church multiplied. Is that what it says? The fear of the Lord and the comfort or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter uh, 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's only about another 100 verses like that in the New Testament, too. Let me pray, and uh, we'll see you 